بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن شهر رمضان كريم سلام everyone Welcome to the 14 Pillars Podcast where we aim to deepen our relationship with the 14 infallibles of Islam one hadith at a time My name is Ali Imad Fadlallah and today we respond to a request from one of our listeners who replied to one of our Instagram polls and asked us to dedicate an episode to this excellent topic Jihad Undoubtedly We've been hitting on this topic indirectly, but today we bring it front and center in a special way, and at the same time, we'll connect it to another topic we've been discussing a lot, not necessarily a religious one, but one that does have great impact on our spiritual growth and identity in Islam. And that topic is, again, internalized oppression. If you were here for episode 2, The Ride, we talked about this term at length, but let's recap. Internalized oppression is when we begin to view ourselves or any part of us through the eyes of the oppressor or the lens of the mainstream, the dominant story. We may be aware we are doing this, but usually we're not. This may be our Arab or Muslim identity, or our identity as a short person, stay-at-home mother, non-college graduate, immigrant with a thick accent, darker-complected person, someone with a unique facial feature, a low-income individual, etc. There's usually a so-called ideal image, often fed to us by Western media, and when we don't align with this image, we feel insecure. Try it right now. Think of any insecurity, your nose, your name, your teeth, your skin, etc. Ask yourself, does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala see me that way? If the answer is no, that's internalized oppression. We may fear that we're less in people's eyes because of it, And some part of ourselves wants to distance ourselves from this image, and therefore, our identity. The fact that we're usually unaware of it makes it even more dangerous, since it causes us to distance ourselves from ourselves, to disconnect from our truer selves, and therefore, distance ourselves from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For as Imam Ali alayhi salam says, Know yourself to know your Lord. When we become aware of internalized oppression, it's a red flag. We've fallen into the trap. For example, I used to dislike the name Ja'far, most likely because the movie Aladdin poisoned my association with the name as a child, this evil, mean-looking villain named Jafar. I loved how my name was represented in this movie, humble, street-smart, athletic, Prince Ali, but I hated Jafar. We should never underestimate the impact of these subliminal messages in movies and media and how they might shape our deeply-seated views. Then. I met Imam Ja'far as-Sadiq I felt ashamed. How could I dislike a name assigned to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's divine representative? For as Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said, What is religion other than liking or disliking for the sake of Allah? As I got to know Imam Ja'far my genuine feeling toward the name transformed. I had to undo the layers. So through true knowledge, we are freed from the chains of internalized oppression. We gain confidence in a more correct mindset. With that said, I wanted to share an excerpt from a book I just finished that I co-authored with my father, Allah Yirhamu, who, alhamdulillah, was a renowned principal in our community and who inherited a failing middle school before he led it to become one of the top performing middle schools in the state of Michigan. And then during my senior year of high school, he took over my failing public high school alma mater, Fortson High, which our book largely centers on and where his jihad, 
to help raise expectations for kids was met with extreme forms of bigotry. My father and I took turns writing chapters, alternating, and this is from one of my chapters, the opening of chapter 9 in this book. The chapter is called Self-Hating Arab, and it will help transition us into thoughts and hadith on jihad, the holy war or struggle, a word that has been used to cast Muslims in a barbaric light as violent people who are irrationally desperate to go to war. John, the reality is these Islamic jihadists are thirsty for bloodshed to gain rewards from their Allah. Something you'd hear on the news, right? One note before we begin. At this point of the book, the reader is getting to know an outdated version of me, so I'll make references to things I don't align with or care for today. This is clear in the book, but it may have been hard to grasp here without this disclaimer. Here we go. Chapter 9. Self-Hating Arab For you and me to be among the first of our American kind, Muslim, Shia, Arab, first-generation, American-born, Lebanese, hip-hop-fashioned Fortson boys, who used words like key and let me in ways only few could decode, yet never see a semblance of ourselves in mainstream media whatsoever, not in popular music or politics or film or fashion, and for DJ Khaled, 1,400 miles away in Miami, to be the only, almost representation we felt we had, and then to not only not be seen for who we are, but also be seen and hated for who we aren't, you know, America-hating terrorist, woman-hating misogynist, Jesus-hating extremist, gas station-bound barbarians, etc., is a bizarre reality, and a reality that was ripe soil from which my self-hatred took root. For me, it happened slowly, subconsciously, and surely, feelings of invisibility teetering on insanity. This insanity made me question whether I deserved to be seen, and whether I should betray Baba and Mama's teachings and join the majority who already jumped ship on our sinking identity. Many jumped into the White Sea, the Muhammads and Alis and Ahsans of the West Side, now Mike, Eli, and Sam, though the East Side was more inclined toward blackness, doubling down on our Detroit-influenced identity in our own Arabized ways. Whatever it was, I needed some workaround and a nation determined to erase my identity, to prostitute my faith, to prosecute and remove the hijabs from my matriarchs, for America insisted that the liberation of our woman was tied up beneath that suffocating fabric. She passionately crafted her so-called progressive language to belittle our ancestors and belie her true intent. For I would later learn, America just wanted to use my wife's hijab as a fashionable noose to hang us from. My uncle Jihad, for one, would be hard to erase at 6 feet 4 inches, 230 pounds, and one of a few childhood heroes I had, tall and short-tempered, but a gentler giant, who wore his heart on his sleeve and his hair back with a clean shave, and who, along with my uncle Hassan, took me to Detroit Pistons, Lions, and Wings games, and performed miracles, catching bees and showing me their stingers without getting stung, introducing me to Isaiah Thomas at courtside, then snapping the Polaroid selfie for proof. Jihad even convinced my parents to let me cruise with him to the Caribbeans on a carnival ship, where he kept calling me chicken, since I was too shy to approach a pretty girl I kept seeing. They were my biggest fans. Jihad was even my photographer, the man who snapped shots of me snatching first downs near the sideline, or shots of my jump shot at the moment's flick of my wrist, 
following his calm still shot with a roaring, Let's go! that startled spectators and shook the bleachers. So the sound and sight of jihad was one of jubilance, of joy. But America never knew my uncle, nor wanted to for that matter, though she claimed to. She reintroduced us to jihad as the war-mongering barbarian whose holy war was to be waged against the West. She managed to dismiss jihad as a legit name that mothers like my teta give their child for reasons that have probably never once in history had anything to do with losing them on a suicide mission. She fought to sabotage the words of our holy prophet who says, The greatest jihad is to battle your soul, to fight the evil within yourself. And yet, in the same breath as she dismissed the name, America named 1.5 billion Muslims jihad all at once, thrusting the term Islamic jihadists into our global conscious overnight, her propaganda like American police on a drug raid, and we were just lying in the dark on Dearborn's east side. We know how that story unfolds. And as you know, the silent slaughter of our kind that happened in Dearborn for decades pre-9-11 became an international campaign post-9-11, a war on terror, laced with Islamophobic rhetoric and characterized by the war on Iraq, domestic hate crimes, including many in Dearborn, new discriminatory laws and policies, airport harassment, of which my uncles Jihad and Hassan endured the worst of, and local abuse, no better an example than the city of Dearborn and its public schools, especially Fortson, where my sister Rima spent each morning watching 15 minutes of Fox News, her teacher's replacement for the recommended 15 minutes of silent reading. He followed Fox with his own monologues, criticizing, quote, this administration, code, of course, for Imad Fadlallah, for its horrible leadership, making a hobby of humiliating my then 13-year-old sister, whose fear, mainly of adding to Baba's mounting stress, stopped her from reporting the monstrosities she endured. And when it wasn't that teacher, she was fielding interviews from others. Why does your father visit Lebanon so often? What does he do there? Why doesn't he come to your track meets? Do y'all talk? Hmm, about what? So I was alive, but not awake for America's onslaught. I was among those who Imam Ali described when he said, People are asleep, and when they die, they awaken. I was, despite Baba's eloquent recitations of hadith, an empty shell of the spiritual knowledge my forefathers were armed with. I found no refuge or respite in knowing I was unfairly targeted, for there is no poverty more severe than ignorance, Imam Ali salam said, and the real refuge was in the proverbial caves of my history. Knowledge gives life to the soul, the Imam added, but I wouldn't find these words, nor find myself in them, for another decade, and the light of my soul dimmed to a darkness that left me searching for lost truths amid America's propaganda its images slowly transforming my insecure reality into an identity crisis, a crisis that beckoned me to share the bigot's sentiment, not so boldly as beginning to view myself or my kind as barbaric, no, but more discreetly and dangerously, as I privately wondered if maybe I belonged to a bloodline that was unfit for the Western lifestyle that my life was now styled in. The evidence of my self-hate, as it goes, 
hid in plain sight. I dressed my words and myself to impress, but dressed the wounds inside of me with binges of fast food and worse forms of abuse. Fat and dumb were among the secret mantras my mirror evoked, even as I still believed I loved myself, and being powerful and known, being significant, were themes that captivated my conscious and career plans. My self-hate was a surefire, predictable, at least by default if not by design, for Dearborn taught me that white folk were kings and queens of control, and hip-hop taught me black folk were kings and queens of culture, and so I should vie for validation from one or the other or both. And more notably, it taught me that chief among my challenges was not existing at the bottom of this totem pole, but worse, not existing at all. And yet, I wasn't wrong to deny myself hate, because I saw myself through the mirror America had fashioned for me, a distorted mirror of invisible cracks that was clever not to reflect them back, cracks of anti-Islam and anti-Shia and anti-Arabism and anti-immigration that contorted my self-image yet appeared invisible, no application box to remind me to check myself or check on myself, no literature to legitimize our struggle, no school statistics on Arabs to tell the story of our failures, no truthful media to hold a mirror up, no figurehead to tell me go figure or help me figure me out. All I saw was a Arab boy doing the best he could to play the game, build a career, build clout, and eventually maybe earn a color in America's racial crayon box, because brown was already taken, and white was trying to white out my culture like it did to Caucasians, and olive-skinned was a cute tagline, but whose race is that? The Grinch? And so, even when I was intoxicated with internalized oppression, and even as my loved ones investigated why I was behaving as if I was immortal, irresponsible, I couldn't see the self-hate. In fact, I often saw a self-loving young man, smiling, equipped with Baba's contentedness and Mama's self-determination, bracing for blow after blow, accepting it as part of life, and refusing to abandon the seemingly unbroken boy who stared back. Instead, I turned my internalized scars into an invisible superpower that I used masterfully on my misguided path, scraping up clout or social capital, using whatever privilege I could recycle from the white man's wasteland, albeit subconsciously. His pale white skin, check. His media to teach me how to climb his corrupt ladder, check. And of course, his money. The money my poverty-stricken parents eventually earned and poured into my accounts so that I may hike to the highest of his higher ed institutions. Checks. Okay, I'll stop there. Inshallah you enjoyed that snippet. You know, the reason I decided to share this is because of a great irony that struck me when I wrote it and still strikes me each time I read it. And it is this, that although this excerpt I shared may seem to be more about internalized oppression than jihad in the Islamic sense, the irony is, for many of us, Internalized oppression is our jihad. It's our jihad to look in the mirror and investigate what positive aspects of our identity or culture or religion we may want to distance ourselves from or that we aren't getting closer to and truly ask ourselves, why? What's the root? Another irony is, many of us have internalized oppression about the term jihad itself, despite being followers of the 14 infallibles and despite Imam Muhammad al-Baqir 
echoing what all of our 14 pillars say when he says, There is no greater honor than jihad, and no jihad like combating oneself. How do we reconcile being uncomfortable with a term championed by our pillars? And so you heard the hadith from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi in this chapter, who says, The greatest jihad is to battle your soul, to fight the evil within yourself. Because if we feel this way, all because of how this term is manipulated by the media, it's not the media's responsibility to undo this feeling, it's ours. But let's unpack jihad even further. When speaking about obligatory versus optional jihads, Imam Jafar al-Sadi says, Of the obligatory is one's jihad against his soul's desire to disobey Allah, the most majestic, the most glorious, and this is the greatest form of jihad. And so it is our jihad to fear our sins and fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more. Yes, fear. And if you are here for my personal favorite episode, episode 14 called The Flip Side, you already know. We're not talking about the fear that paralyzes us. We're talking about the fear that catalyzes us into action, into righteous jihad, into being fearless about everything except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our disobedience or sins. The Imam is saying it is our jihad to overturn our hidden polytheism in its many forms, which we discuss at length in the episode Hidden in the Open, where we clearly see that this was the jihad which Rasulullah feared for us most, that we would perform actions for other than Allah and indulge in passions and privacy. Imam Ali says, The best jihad is combating oneself against desire and stopping it from the pleasures of this world. It follows that it is our jihad to fight against lust and gluttony, which means overindulgence in food, in which Imam Ali calls the most comprehensive of evil defects. Rasulullah in another hadith says, The best jihad is jihad against one's own soul and concupiscence, which means sexual desire or lust. One man confesses to Imam Muhammad al-Baqir He says, O Imam, I am not doing a great job with prayer or fasting, but I only eat what's lawful and I do not act on lustful desires. The Imam responds, What jihad is better than restraint of the stomach and the private parts? The Imam isn't just referring to eating what's halal, but general restraint of the stomach, including from gluttony. So the Imam encouraged this believer. Of course, he isn't saying that it's okay that prayer and fasting is being neglected. He's simply helping the man see, if you're capable of those two jihads, you're capable of these two as well. And so, these hadith put the reality of jihad in perspective, that the internal jihad is paramount in importance, the foremost struggle, superior to the external jihad. In fact, even when addressing the external jihad, Rasulullah says, the best jihad is a word of truth to a cruel king. It reminds me of the famous hadith many of us know, in which Rasulullah says, The ink of a scholar is holier than the blood of a martyr. So the external jihad ranges from scholars to soldiers, from activism to armed forces. Yet Imam Jafar as-Sadiq reiterates the rankings. The Imam says, When Allah draws a balance sheet of deeds, then a drop of the scholar's ink will be weightier and more valuable than the blood of the martyrs. Imam Ali narrates that Rasulullah once dispatched troops on a mission 
to do the external jihad of war. When his troops returned from the battlefront, Rasulullah said, Blessed are those who have performed the lesser jihad and have yet to perform the greater one. When they said, O Prophet of Allah, what is the greater jihad? Rasulullah replied, The jihad of the self. The best jihad is that of one who combats his own self, the one between his two sides. Allahu Akbar. This hadith is profound. It can be taken literally that between the two sides of our bodies lives the soul that we battle within. But perhaps it can also be taken as the battle between our two sides, the good and evil that live within. And Rasulullah was saying they're blessed to be alive and able to complete the greater jihad after having completed the lesser one. There are many more hadith that establish clearly for us the types of internal and external jihads and how they are ranked by our 14 infallibles. Rasulullah says kindness to our parents is tantamount to jihad, which means equal to. In another hadith, he equates working hard to earn a halal income to jihad. So we can see clearly that our 14 infallibles value the internal over the external, and even among the external, they valued a word of truth or a great work ethic over swords and guns. But, and here's where at least some of us must undo those layers of internalized depression that cause us to want to stop there and say, yeah, see, jihad is only the fight within or a word of truth or hard work. It's not fighting or war. Take that, Western media. But that's not true. That's our internalized depression speaking. That's not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaking and by extension, our 14 pillars speaking. So let's be abundantly clear to deny external jihad that for some believers must reach the point of violence is to deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is to dismiss his words throughout the Holy Quran, including chapter 3 verse 169. Do not think of those who are slain in the way of Allah as dead. No, they are alive with their Lord and are provided sustenance. These martyrs Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to were called into a most difficult jihad, a jihad of sacrificing their lives. Indeed, to deny this external jihad is to deny the sacrificed lives of our first 13 infallibles who were all martyrs, but who remain alive with God and within our hearts. To deny this external jihad is to deny the poisoning of our Prophet and his many battles beforehand. It is to disregard the heroic battles led by Amir al-Mu'mineen and to dismiss his assassination, which began with a sword while he was in sujood. It's to deny the brutal murder of his son Muhsin, who died in the womb of Fatima Zahra who also died from her injuries shortly thereafter, and thus they were slain by the enemies of Ahlul Bayt. It is to deny the poisoning of our holy Imam Hassan al-Mushtaba and the brutal murder of Imam Hussein the martyr of all martyrs, whose jihad was the utmost manifestation of it, just like the Ahlul Bayt who preceded him, spiritual, physical, internal, external, self-mastery and self-sacrifice of the greatest proportions, the perfect jihad. Again, to deny external jihad is to deny the martyrdom of each holy imam thereafter, except our current imam. And it is to deny those among us and our generations who did have to stand up and defend their families, their homes, or their homeland 
not with unjust or undue aggression, for this would not be jihad, but with justice and an obligation to survive or die trying. And to deny external jihad is to deny the reality of today and our future, that while it seems our jihad is exclusive to the internal kind, and for many of us it will be, but if we are true believers, educated and honest, we know the external jihad is a reality of belief in the twelfth imam, the riser. In fact, our narrations say that even if we were to die before his arrival, the most faithful believers would be rewarded with resurrection to join the imam, and the external jihad will become incumbent upon the righteous. So although this episode is really about the foremost jihad, the internal, let's spend just another minute on the external to make a real important connection between the two. Imam Ja'far al-Sadd says, When Allah gives the Qa'im, or the riser, permission to rise, 313 people will pledge allegiance to him, and he will halt at Mecca until the number of his helpers reach 10,000. Thereafter, he shall continue to Medina. In another hadith, the Imam says, The Mahdi will not appear unless the size of his group is completed. Upon being asked how many his companions would be, the Imam said, 10,000. So it's common to say we're waiting on the Mahdi, and it's true. But these hadith challenge us, because in a sense, the Imam is telling us, actually, the Mahdi will be waiting on you too. For when the Imam says he will wait until his helpers reach 10,000, does he just mean until our flights arrive? Or is the Imam awaiting us to complete the greater internal jihad before signing up for the external as the number climbs to 10,000, all while the fate of humanity awaits? And if so, how long will we leave him standing in Mecca, waiting? Let's close with a deeper understanding of jihad's layers, especially on the internal level. For although there are many more hadith about the external, its types, its importance, its obligatoriness, we again must prioritize the internal. This hadith is from Imam Hussein salam, who narrates a hadith similar to the one narrated by his father, Amir al-Mu'mineen, and his grandfather, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi. Sayyid al-Shuhada, the master of all martyrs, said, Jihad is divided into four branches, to persuade people to be obedient to Allah, to prohibit them from sin and vice, to struggle sincerely and firmly on all occasions, and to detest the vicious. The Imam continues, Whoever persuades people to obey the orders of Allah provides strength to the believers. Whoever dissuades them from vices and sins humiliates the unbelievers. Whoever struggles on all occasions releases his obligations. And whoever detests the vicious only for the sake of Allah, then Allah will take revenge on his enemies and will be pleased with him on the day of judgment. Allahu Akbar. So number one, to persuade others to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a great jihad. Number two, to dissuade or prohibit others from sin and vice, another great jihad. Number three, to struggle sincerely and firmly on all occasions for Allah's cause, which includes the most important, internal jihad. And number four, to detest the vicious. Because again, as Rasulullah says, what is religion but to like or dislike for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The Imam explained that those of us who convince others not to fall into vice or sin humiliate the unbelievers or the hypocrites. 
It reminds me of the words of his divine mother and the blessed daughter of the Prophet Fatima Zahra, as-salatu wassalam who said, Jihad is the honor of Islam and a humiliation for the people of polytheism and hypocrisy. Lady Fatima is the honor of Islam that she speaks of, and her jihad symbolized this honor, for after her brutal murder, her dying wish was to be buried secretly to humiliate the hypocrites who would have shown up at her funeral pretending to honor her and her holy progeny. But she waged jihad until the end of time by making her absent grave an enduring symbol of jihad, of truth, and of the grave tyranny and oppression she and her holy progeny endure. Let's end on a less morbid note with one more hadith. Although it is obligatory upon us to fight the evil within, and in some cases obligatory to fight physically to defend our lives or respond to the imam's call, there is also an optional jihad, which requires a balance of internal and external, and which offers perfect closure to our discussion today. Imam Jafar al-Sadiq says, The optional jihad is every optional institution for which one strives hard to establish, for revival. The work and the pursuit of such task is of the most excellent deeds. It is the reviving of a tradition. The Imam continues, The Messenger of Allah has said, Whoever establishes a noble tradition, he gains the reward thereof, and a reward equal to the reward of those who act upon these noble traditions up until the Day of Judgment, without any reduction in the rewards of any one of them. Allahu Akbar, the mosques, the schools, the centers, the initiatives we may establish to uphold the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi and the truth of our 14 pillars. Perhaps you're listening with dreams of establishing your own one day. Well, the Imam wants you to know it comes with incredible rewards from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, including ajr from all who benefit and perpetuity, for it is a holy struggle to keep the truths and traditions of our 14 pillars alive, especially amidst the army of fabricators, including within the Muslim ummah, who try to suppress them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala free us from internalized oppression around names like jihad and its layered meanings, which we have no reason to be anything but confident about and honored by. And as much as the enemies of Islam try to pervert its definitions, and as successful as they may seem to be at doing so, they are failing. They have failed, and they will forever fail, for its true meanings, value, honor, and essence will prevail by Allah's grace and will. Thank you for tuning in. See you next time, and assalamu alaikum.